Thank you very much. I so appreciate it. Somebody's Bible is up here. Would this, would that be yours? King James Version Amplified? Yes. All right. Very good. Thanks, Pastor Mark. The one and only. The one and only. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I, I liked what Pastor Mark said. That what, what do you say? We know each other real well and we like each other anyway. Something like that. Still friends. Yeah. I heard the definition of a friend is that a friend is somebody that knows all about you and loves you anyway. And that's a, that's a pretty good definition of a friend. But uh, I, if you heard this morning, I said church this morning without Pastor Mark and Brenda being here was like a hot fudge Sunday with no whipped cream or cherry on top. So aren't you glad the whipped cream and cherry are back? So amen. Oh, Pastor Mark and Brenda, really love and appreciate you guys and really value our friendship. And, and tonight, uh, we're just going to kind of pick up where we left off today. How many of you, were any of you not here today? I realize several may not have been. Uh, today, this morning, we talked about a story back from Genesis chapter 14 when Abraham heard that his nephew had been taken captive. And when he heard that his nephew Lot had been taken captive, the Bible says that Abraham armed his 318 trained servants who had been born in his own house and went in pursuit and went way from the south of Israel, way to the north of Israel, 140 miles, finally encountered the enemy. And then the Bible says he divided his forces by night and attacked these armies that had captured his nephew and pursued them another 100 miles up north of Damascus in Syria. And that he, they captured, you know, took over this enemy army and rescued Lot and all of Lot's people and all of Lot's goods and possessions. And so we saw that it was a story of restoration, but there were four key elements that happened. Uh, number one, Abraham had compassion in his heart. And number two, he took action. And the action involved arming his people, training his people, uh, pursuing uh, together in partnership. And then the strategy, dividing the forces, and then the, the restoration. And it really is a pattern uh, for what God has done in our lives when, when He was aware that we had been taken captive. Thank God He didn't sit and, and judge us, but God had compassion toward us, uh, took action toward us. Jesus came to seek and to save those of us which were lost, which was all of us. And, uh, but it wasn't just like it wasn't Abraham that did it all by himself. Uh, you know, Jesus, even though he died for us, uh, when it came to actually pursuing and, and reaching us, probably Jesus didn't appear to us personally. It was one of his trained servants that did it. And so, uh, and then the restoration that took place and that type of thing. And then we talked about what it means to be one of the 318 servants. And I said that Pastor Mark is a lot like Father Abraham. Only because he has such great faith. I don't. Did I didn't refer to anything else? Did I? Oh, did I? I'm so so sorry. But anyway, uh, thanks for helping me out and covering me, guys. I really I feel the love. Thank you very much. Uh, but uh, you know, when when God wants to do something in the earth, He raises up a leader. He always does. That's God's pattern. When God wants to do something, He raises up uh, an Abraham, a Noah, uh, a Moses, a Nehemiah, a, a Deborah, an Esther, uh, a Paul. 
When God wants to do something in the earth, His pattern is so consistent. He raises up a leader, and He gives that leader what we just an assignment. Uh, what was Noah's assignment? Build an ark. What was Nehemiah's assignment? To build a wall. What was Moses' assignment? Lead the people out. Uh, Paul's assignment was to plant churches. When God wants to do something in the earth, He raises up a leader and He gives that leader an assignment. And the pattern then is that the leader realizes that he or she can't do that job all by himself or herself. So the leader will always cry out to God and say, like Moses, God, I can't do this. You know, they won't believe me. I don't speak well. You know, Moses had all those excuses. And God always has two answers for the leaders that he has raised up. His first answer is, number one, I will be with you. And his second answer is always, and I will send people to help you. And so that's why Moses had Joshua and Aaron and Hur and the elders. That's why David had Jonathan and the mighty men. That's why Nehemiah had all those people that worked on all the different sections of the wall. Uh, that's why even Abraham, he didn't, like I said, he didn't sneak out of camp in a ninja outfit to go try to rescue Lot. No, Abraham, even though he was a man of faith, he knew that he had to use all of the people that God had given him. And that's where his faith was. God, I believe you will give us victory. Abraham's faith wasn't that, well, God, I can do anything all by myself. Abraham's faith was, God, if, if I use the people you've given me, together we can do the job. And Paul, that's why Paul had, uh, you know, Timothy and Titus and Silas and Barnabas and Mark and Epaphroditus and all these others who helped him. And, and we just come to this conclusion that when God wants to do something in the earth, he raises up a leader who then raises up a team. And God gives the leader the team. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 2. Because I said specifically tonight, we're going to be talking about the role of believers in the last days. I'm not much of an eschatology guy. I'm not here to teach on the timing of the rapture, the identity of the Antichrist, or anything like that. But I do believe we're in the last days. And I think that's biblically a very safe statement because Peter said those last days started around 2,000 years ago. And so... You know, that may have been the first of the last days, and we may be in the last of the last days. And you say, well, a couple thousand years is a really long time. Well, the Bible says that a thousand years with the Lord is just like a day to Him. And a day to Him is just like a thousand years. So, you know, we, we aren't on, you know, God's framework and type of thinking necessarily. But we are in an era known as the church age, uh, the age of grace, the age of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we are in a very unique time, and we do see world events unfolding, and we see world conditions. Um, how many of you have noticed things in the world aren't necessarily getting really cheery and bright and encouraging and things like that? We need to know uh, that we are in this world, but we are not of this world. Uh, we have a covenant with Almighty God, and this is a day we'd better know and understand our covenant. And we need to know that, you know, however the world goes, that that doesn't necessarily dictate exactly how it's going to go for us. Uh, because we have a God who said, and this is why it's important to be in covenant with God through tithing and, you know, bringing your first fruits into the church and so on and so forth. Because God said he'd supply all of our needs, not according to the world's 
economic conditions. But he said he'd supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And I'm going to tell you, there's no recession in heaven. And I know that I know that sometimes the things of the world hit us, but but as we hold on to God, I believe that God's going to bring us out, bring us through, bring us over, and that um, you know what He said is so true. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And there's really there's there's a couple of different ways that you can come to God. There's a couple of different ways that you can even perceive your relationship with God. And one is what I call a survival mentality. Uh, and, and sometimes we refer to folks as crisis Christians. And uh, have any of you, let me just ask you this, in the last 10 years, or how about the last 10 weeks, how about the last 10 days? Ha- have you faced a crisis? Have you faced a situation that just really just knocked the daylights out of you? You know, it could have been something financial, physical, relational, personal, emotional, whatever. But you just faced a situation that just knocked the wind out of you, knocked you upside down. And, and, and without even trying to, you're just crying out, God, help me. Because you need help. And see, the Bible is full of, of situations like that. Uh, David, time and again, said, in my distress, I cried unto the Lord. And I want you to know that, that when we are in a crisis mode, when we are in a moment of, of just trusting God to survive, to make it to the next day, I want you to know, not He loves you in that moment. He's there to support you in that moment. He's not down on you. He's not down on me. We've all faced crisis moments. We've all faced times where we felt like we just had one nostril above water. And, you know, we were just trying to make it. You know, when, when those moments come, to be honest, we're not really thinking about going into all the world and preaching the gospel. We just want to live. We just want to survive. Okay? Uh, how, how many of you have been in a survival moment, you know, and, and, and he loves us when we're in those moments. And man, when we're in those kind of moments, where should we run? We should run to the Lord. We should run to church. And we need to be the kind of people that, you know, we don't condemn folks when they're hurting, struggling. Uh, we don't look down and say, well, if you had more faith or anything like that, you know, we just love one another and encourage one another. And, and you know, I've been in, in survival moments And I'm always glad when I get out of the survival moment. I'm glad when I feel that second nostril get above the water line. How about you? And then sometimes we just, you know, we sense the Lord has given us a great deliverance. The situation has turned around. And you know, it's amazing how many people, once they get out of their crisis, how quickly they forget God. They, you know, they, they, they go to church when they're in a crisis, but man, as soon as they're out of the crisis, they don't need God anymore until the next crisis. And then they come running back to God. Well, God's merciful and God's kind and loving and all that. But, you know, I, we want to establish something more solid in our life than just running to God as an emergency parachute. God is more than a panic button. Okay. Um, and, and so a lot of times folks will then go into a second phase. They get out of the survival phase and, and they move into what we would call a success phase. And they begin to look to God not just to help them survive because they feel like, hey, that's all taken care of. But now, God, I want you to help make me successful. Uh, when we're in a survival mode, we're thinking about one thing and that's what I need. When we get over into the success phase, then we're thinking about what we want. 
We move from needs to desires. And, you know, there's always people that say, well, now God won't give you your desires. He'll only meet your needs. Well, Jesus said what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. Uh, You know, so I don't really much go for that. Um, But, you know, we, we shouldn't stop at success either. God does want to give us the desires of our heart. God does want, uh, the Bible says, He daily loads us with benefits. He satisfies our mouth with good things, uh, you know, so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. God is more than just a, a, you know, a bare minimum God. He's the God who's more than enough. But, but then a lot of people will stop right there. They just think the whole purpose of having a relationship with God is for God to make them successful. And that's, that's not really it either. There, there's a third dimension that God wants us to move into. You know, survival is when we focus on what we need. Success is when we focus on what we want. But the third realm that I think God wants us living in for the most part is the realm of significance. And the realm of significance is not based on what we need or what we want, but the realm of significance is what can God do through us. Significance is where we live to take the victories that God has given us and the blessings that God has given us and to have enough of a reservoir and resource so that those things can emanate from us and flow out of us so that we can not simply be a recipient of God's blessings, but so that we can be a distributor of God's blessings. And, and in the book of Acts, we see the culmination... Or, or maybe it's not really the culmination. It, it's an initiation point where everything that Jesus had done during his earthly ministry through his teaching, his preaching, his miracles, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection, everything now kind of culminates on this special day that happened in Acts chapter 2. And what do we call that? That was the day of Pentecost. And uh, we know that that day, uh, you know, we've heard Pentecost preached and we've read about it and we thank God for it, uh, that all the disciples were gathered. They were all in one place, in one accord. They were in unity and harmony. And, and you know what they were doing? They were just obeying Jesus. Jesus had said, wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be clothed with power from on high. And Jesus then said to them in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, He said, And you shall be witnesses unto me. Everybody say witnesses. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall... uh, What does it say in Acts chapter 1 8? You shall... You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, there's something very interesting to note here. The purpose of Pentecost was not tongues. Now, tongues was an evidence of Pentecost. You've heard the difference between cause and effect. Tongues was an effect of Pentecost. What does the Bible say in Acts 2, 4? And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That wasn't the purpose of Pentecost. That was an effect and an evidence of Pentecost. What was the purpose? The purpose of Pentecost was power to be witnesses. 
And they all spoke in tongues. They were, everybody say all. all. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. But you know what? They didn't sit in that room and speak in tongues for 24 hours. It was just a matter of time. There was such a supernatural phenomenon that took place. The Bible says the whole city ran together, you know, to see what was going on. And because this feast was going on, there were people there from, you know, Jewish people from all over the, the known world there who had come for this feast. And, and as the disciples flooded out of the upper room and they were speaking in these other languages, what they were really doing was glorifying God and declaring the wonderful works of God in languages that they didn't intellectually know. It was a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. Tongues was an evidence, but power to be a witness was the cause, was the purpose. Now... As, as the city flooded together and all these people from all these different language groups gathered, uh, Peter uh, got up and preached. Preached this powerful sermon. And uh, it says in Acts chapter 2.16, it says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the, in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on... Now, see, to us, we've heard this so many times, and we grew up so far away from them uh, historically and culturally that we just take this for granted. This is no big deal to us. Yeah, God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. Do you know how radical that was to those people? How revolutionary that was. I mean, you talk about something that would have been hard for them to get their mind wrapped around because they had been brought up and under the old covenant that they all had grown up under for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. It was only a select few that had this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on their life. Do you remember the three groups in particular that got to experience the, the presence and the anointing of God? It was the the prophet, the priest, and the king. And it was only for them to do a certain function. Um, and there were a few others that had the Spirit for a specific assignment. But by and large, it was a very narrow group. It was a very select group. And, and the rest of everybody else were basically spectators, observers. It was just this small select group that got to have the power of the Spirit at work in their life. And all of a sudden, Peter gets up quoting this prof uh, prophecy from the Old Testament prophet Joel and says, This is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And notice this, your sons and your daughters... Not just some prophet somewhere, not just some priest, not just some king. Your kids... Your sons, your daughters are going to prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now... Again, this was a revolutionary concept to them, a radical concept to them that everybody would have the Spirit of God 
And, and so that's why there, there was actually a demonstration of this prophecy because when you study the language groups, I don't remember how many there were, but there were a lot of language groups. And here you have all these fishermen and, and women and young people and old people flooding out into the street, declaring the works of God in these different... And, and they weren't, in their mind, they weren't prophets, priests, or kings. But they saw this, this expression. There's three themes that I want you to capture from this because this is very important. Three themes that we see in this passage in the book of Acts are, are as follows. Number one, the first theme is everybody. Everybody say everybody. everybody. All, flesh. All flesh. Oh, you didn't need to say that. <laughs> All flesh, sons, daughters, young men, old men. Men servants, maid servants, it doesn't, you know, whatever your background, whatever your socioeconomic, whether you're old, young, male, female, no barriers, no restrictions, everybody in the last days is going to have this experience uh, to have. Here's the second phrase that I want you to catch influence. Everybody say influence. influence. The influence is the empowerment by the Spirit of God. And here's the third phrase I want everybody to catch. Expression. Say expression. We're talking the three key elements of this in Acts chapter 2 is number one, everybody. Number two, influence. And number three, expression. And, and let me just put that in a sentence instead of just a list of one, two, three. Everybody in the new covenant is going to have access to divine influence in their life so that there can be a divine expression from their life. Everybody influence expression. And if you want to know the role of believers in the last days, in just a quick nutshell, it's just that. Every single one of us in the new covenant has access to divine influence in our life so that there can be a divine expression from our lives. Now, we're going to talk about, in, in the course of this service tonight, we're going to talk about the whole idea of, of prophecy. Uh, you know, the Bible says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and they shall prophesy. And then in verse 18, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. We're going to talk about what that is because I think, unfortunately, in the church at large, we've given a very narrow definition of what prophecy is. And I really think, biblically, prophecy has a much broader uh, definition than just our little narrow definition of getting up in church and saying, Yea, thus saith the Lord, I love you, my children. Okay? Um, Flip in your Bibles, if you would, over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. Now, one of the things to remember is that Jesus did not say, and you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall do witnessing. He didn't say that. Hey, listen, and if you're a person who does witnessing, praise God, hallelujah, wonderful. But Jesus didn't say you'll do witnessing. He said you will be a witness. And there is, I think there is a difference there. Now, there, there is a certain segment of the, of the Christian population 
that they're wired a certain way that it's just the most natural thing in the world for them to go up to somebody and they've never met before and just say, hey, by the way, do you know Jesus? And just engage them. And I mean, there are people that are so wired and in such a way that, you know, they get more people saved by accident than most folks do on purpose. I mean, they get the gas station guy saved. They get the convenience store guy saved. They get the lunch counter person saved. And they're just, hallelujah. What, what could be more wonderful than that? But the problem is the people who are wired that way and that that would just be the most awkward thing in the world for them, you know, uh, they feel like, well, I'm just a nobody. I'm a total reject. I'm a total loser because I, I don't do it that way. We're going to talk about the fact some of the issues of diversity within the body of Christ and variety in the body of Christ. And thank God for people who, you know, who are either naturally or supernaturally equipped and aligned that way. And, and, and there are some who have, you know, maybe even overcome some things to get more gifted and proficient that way. But God doesn't just use people in one way and one way only. One of the things that we're going to find is that this whole thing about everybody and influence and expression is that there are really, a in the New Testament, there are a multitude of expressions, a variety of expressions. Let's look at this in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 10. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one, as each one, now, now, what does it mean when it says each one? Let me give you an example. Let's say, now this is hypothetical, okay? I'm, I'm saying if in front of this. Everybody catch the fact that I'm saying if. If I said, as soon as this service is over, please come see me, and I've got a hundred dollar bill, for each one of you. Now that's the most excited you've been all, all service. If, if I said, about to take a running spell, aren't you? If I said, I want each one of you to come see me after church because I've got a hundred dollar bill for each one of you. So, you know, I mean, you guys aren't dumb. I mean, as soon as this service is dismissed, there'd be a long line of people wanting to see me. Now, what would happen if you're, let's say, you're number eight in line and you watch, you're watching because, you know, this just seems too good to be true. And the first seven people that, that come up and say hi to me, I just put, give them a crisp new $100 bill and you're number eight in line. So your expectation has been building. And when you get in front of me, I look at you and I say, you know what? I, I'm sorry, I don't have anything for you. You'll need to step aside. And then the person right behind you, I give them a $100 bill, number 10, a $100 bill, number 11. And you're off to the, I've kicked you out of line. And you're saying, wait a minute. You said each one. See, that wouldn't be right for me to do that, would it? I could, I could not and I absolutely should not exclude you. If I say I've got something for each one of you, then that means you're part of the deal. Yes. Peter said, as each one has received a gift. Now, hold just a second here. Each one, that kind of sounds like everybody has received a gift. That kind of sounds like influence. 
As each one, everybody, has received a gift, influence, minister it to one another. What's that sound like? That's the expression. We're going to find that, that, that those concepts, those principles, everybody, influence, expression, are all through the New Testament. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold. Do you know what the word manifold means? It means diversified. It means multifaceted. It means it's not all the same. We don't all have the same gift. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace or influence of God. And then he goes on to say something very interesting. If anyone speaks. Now, why would he say if anyone speaks? I mean, aren't we all called to preach? Aren't we all called to get up and give sermons behind the pulpit? Isn't everybody called to be a, an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher with a preaching gift? Certainly not. That's why he says, if you speak. Now, he's not talking about if you speak like, you know, I like toast. He's not talking about that. He's talking about if we speak in terms of our ministry. If that's the gift we've received. If that's the expression that we give to the body of Christ. If anyone speaks... Let him speak as of the oracles of God. In other words, if you're called to preach or speak publicly, ministry-wise, you're not called to give your opinion, your theory, you know, what you think about it. You're called to speak the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? That just means speak what God has revealed. And then he goes on to say, if anyone ministers... See, he, he really here makes two divisions. If anyone speaks and if anyone ministers, that word minister means serves. And, and it, we can divide up our different types of gifts and abilities in multiple ways. But here Peter just does a, a big, broad division. Those who preach and those who don't preach but who serve. Now, we can do multiple divisions and get very micro-detailed, but here he just given the big picture. There are those who are going to serve behind the pulpit, and there are those who are going to serve behind the scenes. But each one, no matter which you're doing, each one has received a gift. And we're to minister that gift one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If it's a teaching or preaching, a vocal gift, then we're to speak the things that God has revealed. If we're not called to preach publicly, but we're called to serve, then we need to serve how? With the ability which God supplies. That God in all things may be glorified. Now real quickly, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to share with you in a couple minutes a few prophecies that have been given about the role of believers in the last days. And I think you're going to really, really like it. But I want to look at one more thing in Scripture first before we get into this collection of prophecies. In Ephesians 4.11, 
Paul said he himself, Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the entertaining of the saints. Well, what does your Bible say? Not, not for the entertaining, it's for the perfecting of the saints, or my translation, New King James, is for the equipping of the saints. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people that think preachers just exist for entertainment. Oh, he's my favorite preacher. He just, you know, thrills me. Well, you know... We're, we're not, it, it's really not a popularity contest. It's really not a talent contest. It's not a, you know, you dial this number to vote for your favorite preacher. And, you know, it, it's not a matter of being entertained. It, it's a matter of being equipped for the perfecting, for the equipping of the saints. Now, let's look at this. For the perfecting or the equipping of the saints... You know that word, go, go back to that if you would. That word perfecting there, for the equipping, there it is in the New King James. That word equipping or perfecting is, is a Greek word that was used for fishermen when they fixed their nets. When fishermen would fish, what, what happens if your net's messed up? Yeah, you lose fish. You know, and nets can be kind of messed up one of two ways. Number one, they could be all kinked up. So that a net, net that's supposed to be 12 feet by 12 feet is instead only, you know, because it's all kinked up, it's only, you know, 6 feet by 8 feet. So when the fisherman throws the net, it doesn't work right. So the fisherman would have to unkink the net and, and, and get his net so that when he throws it out, it has maximum potential. The other way that a fisherman would fix his net is if, the, if it got ripped. And instead of having a tight mesh, now it's got holes in it everywhere. So even though it's full size, when he throws it out, what happens? It's got all these holes in it. So all the fish swim through the holes, the big holes. and get, So the fisherman would have to equip. When, when the fisherman fixed his net, mended his net, it was so that the net would work the way it's supposed to work. So that it would catch the fish that it was designed to catch. And I think it's interesting that the word Paul used for the pastor's role and really the whole fivefold ministry, but we're talking local church here, not universal church, so we'll just refer to the pastor because the pastor is the primary, the senior leader of a local congregation. A shepherd leads sheep. Shepherd and pastor are the same Greek word. Uh, so that when, when you come here, basically you're coming, you know, not to be entertained, but you're coming here to be fixed like a net. And when service is over, you think Pastor Mark dismisses service. He's really not dismissing the service. What he's really doing is throwing you out. So what you need to say when people see you on... On uh, Monday morning, how was your church yesterday? Say, man, Pastor Mark threw us out. 
Because really, that's what, what a fisherman does is he throws the net out. But if you want to give people the, the real story, you, you say, well, Pastor Mark threw us out yesterday, but he's dragging us back in Wednesday night. And he's going he's gonna to equip us a little bit more. And then he's going to throw us out of church Wednesday night. He's going to drag us back in Sunday morning. That's all we do at that church. We get, we get patched up, thrown out, dragged back in, fixed up, thrown out, dragged back in. So you need to throw everybody out of your church at the end of every service and drag them back in. But you understand that's the, the concept there that Paul used when he said the saints come to get equipped. They come to get mended and fixed so that they can be like a fishing net that is whole and well so that it will catch and drag in as many fish as possible. Okay? So the saints would be everybody. The equipping is the influence. And notice it says, let's look at that again. For the equipping, that's the influence of the saints, that's everybody. For the work of the ministry, that's the expression. It's not the pastor who's doing all the work of the ministry. The pastor is equipping the saints so the saints can do the work of the ministry. Do you know there's churches, and I know you're not like this because I know you've been well taught and, and uh, in addition to what Pastor Mark and Brenda teach you, I know, you know they have good ministers in, they've got good books available in the bookstore. So you've been taught according to the New Testament. Amen. But you'd be amazed how many people across this country are in churches where they have an old unbiblical mindset that the pastor's supposed to do all the work. Oh, praying? Oh, we'll, we'll call the pastor and let him pray. Somebody needs to be ministered to? Oh, we'll call the pastor and have him minister to that people. You know, the, the biblical pattern is not that the congregation is, is a, a group of folks who come in and get entertained. They're a group of people that come in and get equipped. They get equipped so that the people can go do the work of the ministry. See, the mindset in many churches in America today is we pay our pastor to do the work of the ministry. Can I tell you what really the biblical mindset is? The biblical mindset is this. We pay our pastor so he can get us to do the work of the ministry. Did you catch that? We pay our pastor so he can get us to do the work. Now, don't misunderstand me. Pastor Mark and Brenda do a lot of work of ministry, but their main function is to equip you to mobilize you so that you can do the work of the ministry. So we see this pattern several places. We've seen it in Acts chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 4, Ephesians 4. Everybody influence expression. Let's say those three words again. Everybody influence expression. What do we mean by that? We mean that in the New Testament, in the last days, in this age of grace, this age of the church, God's plan is for everybody to be influenced by the Spirit, receive gifts or grace from God, uh, so that they can then have those gifts and abilities in their life, so that they can then give expression 
and do the work of the ministry. Now, I want to read to you a few quotes, and I want to tell you a little bit about who said these. These are actually what I believe to be very powerful prophetic utterances. Now, we know, according to the Bible, that we don't just accept prophecy at face value. What does the Bible say about prophecy? We are to test it. We are to judge it. So, you know, this is all secondary to and subservient to Scripture. But, um, you know, as I read these, just kind of see if these don't seem to fit and, and support what Scripture is really teaching. Charles Price was one of the leaders of the Pentecostal movement, and I think he kind of hit his peak of ministry in the 1930s. And this is what he said. He's talking about the last days. And he said, layman, now you know what a layman is? That means not necessarily the pastor behind the pulpit. Layman means just the believer. Somebody who loves Jesus, the person sitting in the pew. Not an official, you know, clergy person, that kind of thing. Uh, Charles Price said, layman will be his most important channel. Not the clergy or the theologians, or the great gifted preachers, but men and women with ordinary jobs in the ordinary world. Mordecai Ham, anybody here heard of Mordecai Ham? Uh, He's the guy that led Billy Graham to the Lord, evangelist that God used to get Billy Graham to accept the Lord. Mordecai Ham said this, he said, God gave me a revelation of the last days. It is the layman that will reach the world. He went on to call layman the sleeping giant of evangelism. How many of you have heard of George Washington Carver? A lot of people, when they think of George Washington Carver, oh yeah, that's the guy that found out all the ways to use peanuts. And that's all they know about George Washington Carver. Few other people know that he found a lot of good usages for sweet potatoes and pecans and soybeans. I mean, the man, uh, if you've never studied his life, and you can't just take the secular sources, because they, they sanitize the story. They don't give you the real truth about how much he loved God how much he got up every morning at four and prayed for a couple of hours, heard from God, and then went to the laboratory and, and, and did what God had shown him in prayer. And that's why he, you know, almost single handedly rescued the economy of the South at one point in time. Uh, he was a man strategically and powerfully used by God. And if you think that all that he was was a guy that played around with peanuts, Listen to this, what, this is what George Washington Carver said. He said, there is going to be a great spiritual awakening in the world. And it is going to come from plain, simple people who know, not simply believe, but actually know that God answers prayer. It is going to be a great revival of Christianity, not a revival of religion. This is going to be a revival of true Christianity. It is going to rise from the layman, from men who are going about their work and putting God into what they do, from men who believe in prayer and who want to make God real to mankind. 
Dwight L. Moody, you've heard of Dwight Moody. He said, if this world is going to be reached, I am convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. And Tommy Hicks, who led the great Argentine revival in the, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s, led about 300,000 people to the Lord in, I think it was Buenos Aires, Argentina. He said this, he said, God is going to take the do-nothings, the nobodies, the unheard of. He is going to take every man and every woman, and he is going to give to them this outpouring of the Spirit of God. Now, I don't know about you. You can judge those prophecies for whatever you think, but they thrill my soul. And to me, they, they amplify and illuminate the scriptural principle that the last day's revival is not going to be based on just a bunch of flashy, cool preachers that everybody, ooh, that's my favorite preacher. You know, God's not into the groupie business. God is into saints, believers being equipped. And I want you to notice how many of those statements. Charles Price said this, Layman will be his most important channel, not the clergy or the theologians or the great gifted preachers, but men and women with ordinary jobs in the ordinary world. And I want you to notice what George Washington Carver said. It is going to rise from laymen who are going about their work and putting God into what they do from men who believe in prayer who want to make God real to mankind. Do you know how many people pray, oh God, deliver me from this crummy job? I just want to be in the ministry, God. Get me out of these these heathen, these pagans, these... Oh, lousy people I have to associate with. Do you know how many people are praying to get delivered from their mission field? To get into the ministry? No, no, no. See, the beauty of this thing is when you come in here on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and any other time you have classes or whatever, and and you get equipped, uh, there's a reason they throw you out of here. It's so you can go into your harvest field. It's so you can go in and influence people. Now, real quickly, turn over to Romans chapter 12. The more I pray, the more I study, the more I look at things, the more I believe that the great revival that we've talked about and prayed about, it's not necessarily going to look anything like other revivals. It, it's going to look totally different. Now, now, you know, you could see those prophecies and say, well, it looks like all those guys are saying the preachers aren't important anymore. Bless God, it's just going to be us laymen. Let's just get rid of all the preachers. No, you're missing the whole point. The pastors will always have their place. The apostle, the prophet... The evangelist, the pastor. This is not a movement that is going to make the fivefold ministry unnecessary. This is a movement that is going to come because of a great equipping that has taken place from the fivefold ministry 
But the fivefold ministry will become increasingly important, not less important. There will always be a need for the saints to get equipped. There will always be a need for a sheepfold for people who have been reached to come in and get discipled and nurtured and get filled with the Holy Spirit and get trained up in the Word of God. This is not one that removes the need for the fivefold ministry, but it is a revival that will build upon the function of the fivefold ministry. It, it, it doesn't take away from the equipping. It simply results in the mobilizing of the saints. Everybody say mobilizing. This revival will be a revival that results from a mobilization of the saints taking what they learn in church, taking what they've received, the influence that everybody gets, and then simply expressing it out and beyond. Now let's look real quickly. This will be the last scripture we look at. Romans chapter 12. And let's just see if we find this same pattern of everybody influence expression. In this passage, verse 4, Romans 12, For as we have many members in one body. Now what's that sound like? Many members in one body. That's everybody. But all the members, there's everybody again, but all the members do not have the same function. Well, a function is an expression. You know, we talk about the anointing, and sometimes the word anointing, the, the influence of the Holy Spirit, the word anointing is sometimes referred to as an unction. And so the unction is the influence, the function is the expression. Everybody say this out loud. Say, I've got an unction, got an unction. to function. That doesn't, it's not, not just a cute rhyming phrase, but that's really saying, I, I've been influenced by the Holy Spirit so that I can have an expression. I have an unction to function. Well, the Bible says we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. Things aren't going to be expressed the same way through you as they are through me. Okay? You know, I'm a teacher. And so just when, when, when I sense the Spirit of God moving... I always get an outline. I mean, seriously, that's just what comes out of me. When, when, a, when a healing evangelist has an unction, what comes out of him is there's somebody in the fourth row, you're wearing a blue shirt, and, and the doctor said there's something wrong with your hip. And, uh, and that they can't do anything about it, but God can come up here. Well, you know, we don't all have the same function. And see, part of the problem in the body of Christ is we've seen how certain people function and are gifted. And we always think, well, man, I'm not gifted the way they are. You know, I just heard that person talk about how they pray for four hours every morning. Huh. I just heard that person talk about how they witness to every person they meet. Gosh. I just heard that person talk about how, you know, they 
they gave 70% of their income last year to the church. Gosh, I don't do that. And the next, you know, and you start hearing about these super evangelists, these super givers, these, you know, and that person, they just, Jesus just appeared to them and talked to them. He's never appeared to me and talked to me. And, and, and so the next thing you know, you're just feeling like you just have, you're, you're just a worthless worm of the dust because you're not having the experiences and the expressions that they have. We don't all have the same function. What does it say? So we, look at verse 5, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. Isn't that cool? Individually we are members of one another. Sometimes we, we get some awareness of some spiritual gift that maybe God has given us and then we get real proud about it. You know, Listen, if you have, let's just say you have the working of miracles flowing through your life. It's not, God didn't do that for you so you could be a big hotshot miracle worker. God gave you that gift so that he could help hurting people. If God gave you the gift of evangelism, it wasn't so you could say, bless God, I'm an evangelist. It's because he loves lost people. If God gave you or me the gift of teaching, it's not to make us a big shot teacher. It's because He wants His people to learn. The, the gifts that we have, we don't have for ourselves. If you've got gifts of healings operating in your life, it's not so that you can be healed. It's so somebody else can be healed. The Lord told Brother Hagen this. Listen to this. The Lord told Brother Hagen, I didn't put my gifts in the church for the church to heal itself with. He said, I put my gifts in the church for the church to heal the world with. Isn't that powerful? We are individually members of one another. So see, we don't need to get intimidated by each other. We don't need to compare, you know, ourselves against one another. We just need to know, man, if Pastor Mark's got some gift, I don't need to feel intimidated. But I need to say, praise God, that's my brother that has that gift. And so I'm going to benefit. I'm going to draw from his insights. Uh, you know, God didn't give him that gift to make me feel inferior or to make him feel superior. God gave him that gift because I need something from that gift. You need something from that gift. We're individually members of one another. Now look at verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Man, don't ever think when you have a gift, don't ever get proud about that gift. Don't ever think that that gift is there for you to be superior to somebody else. That gift is based on a grace that has been given. One place Paul said this. Uh, he said, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you acting as if you didn't receive it? Any gift that you have doesn't make you superior to anybody else. And any gift you don't have doesn't make you inferior to anybody else. We are the body of Christ and we are members in particular. We don't all have the same function and we have gifts differing according to the grace that has been given to us. And then he goes on to give a list. 
if prophecy. Let us prophesy in accordance or proportion to our faith. Or ministry. That means serving. If it's serving, let us use God's grace in our serving. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now let me tell you a couple things about this list. Number one, I don't think this list is exhaustive. I think Paul just threw out a few for examples. I think there are other things that could fit into this list that Paul just didn't, you know, he wasn't trying to cover every possible expression. But these are just some of the graces and their resulting expression. You know, one that Peter referred to, you remember we read 1 Peter 4.10? As each one has received a gift. You know what verse 9 says? He talks about let's love each other fervently. And then he says, and let's use hospitality without complaining. I think hospitality could be on this list. You know, I know, I know Pastor Brenda has, I don't know if it's her primary gift. But there's a, there's a hospitality gift in her life that operates sometimes. <laughs> When it's in manifestation, it usually the manifestation of that gift usually is, is a plate of chocolate chip cookies. But you know, sometimes, I have to be honest, sometimes she's in that flow, sometimes she's not. Ain't flowing this trip. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or serving, let us use it in our serving. If teaching, you know, one of the worst things is a person who just wants to be something that they're not. And so they try to imitate somebody else. You know, the, the, the worst thing you can do is try to be somebody else or try to operate or flow in somebody else's gift or try to conjure up something that's not in you. One of the greatest joys is just to have the liberty to be who you are. And just give what you have to give. Now let's talk about a few of these. Uh, We don't have time to teach on all of them, but, you know, I think most of these, you know, there's some different ways that God can use us. One is formally through positions. And the other is informally through relationships. And some people think that, um, you know, the only time they're serving God is when they're wearing their usher's badge. Listen, that's a, good, that's a form of serving God. When you usher in the church, when you help in the parking lot, when you work in the audio video areas, when you uh, help clean the building, when you take food to somebody who's, you know, in need, going through a crisis or something, and you're doing it as a result of a formal position in the church, that's a very legitimate way of serving God. That's a valid expression of God's love and God's grace at work in your heart. 
But some people think as soon as they take off their badge, they're somehow off, off the clock with God. And they're not looking for opportunities 24-7 for God to use them. And so these things can operate through a formal position, but they can also operate informally through a relationship. Can you imagine somebody needs mercy? And you say, well, I can't do that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only working Sunday during the service. <laughs> or, or what about this? You know, somebody, let's just take an, an example. Somebody comes to you and says, you know what, uh, Brother Tom, you know, uh, man, you know, I, I really got offended at something you said. I mean, you were preaching and I just felt like you were attacking me. And man, you were stepping on my toes. And, and man, I got offended at you, Brother Tom. And and, and I, you know, I was holding some bad feelings and, and w- would you forgive me? And what if Brother Tom said, sorry, that's not my ministry. <laughs> you know, God's called me to lead worship and to preach and to do administer. But, but mercy is just not my thing. Sorry, I'm not going to forgive you. <laughs> Do you know that one of these things listed here was giving? He who gives with liberality? Now, what would happen if next Sunday morning Pastor Mark gets up and says, Hey, guys, it's time to honor God with our tithes and offerings. We're going to bless God today. Believe God for good things in your life. Believe God for the church and all the church's needs. And somebody, you know, uh, writes on an offering envelope, said, uh, Sorry, Pastor Mark. After listening to Brother Cook last Sunday night, I realized that giving is not my ministry. And they turn it in empty. You know, serving or ministry serving, let us use it in our serving. What, what happens if, uh, let's say you're going to have some special event in here and Pastor Mark is about to dismiss service. He says, hey, everybody, before we go tonight, we need to stack up all the chairs and get them all against the wall. If, if some of these, you know, some of you guys can just help us for five minutes, we'll get it done quickly and all that. And somebody just walks out and says, sorry, that's not my gift. I'm not called to serve. I'm called to lead. I'm not called to serve. <laughs> Is that how Paul meant for this to be used? Let me give you a three-word phrase that's very important. Here it is. Basic Christian responsibilities. There's a difference between basic Christian responsibilities and some kind of special gift. You can't use this list as a cop-out from basic Christian responsibility. Basic Christian responsibility, the Bible commands you to forgive people. You know, the Bible tells us to bring the tithes and offerings into the storehouse. Somebody coming up to you and saying, like I was joking with Pastor Tom there, hey, you've you've offended me, please forgive me. You know, we don't have to pray about that. Well, I'm going to pray and see what the Lord wants me to do. You don't need a special leading, and you don't need a special gift or a calling to do that. 
The Bible says, be ye kind one to another. What would kindness do? Tender-hearted. What would tender-heartedness do? Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. You don't have to pray. You don't have to have a leading. You don't have to have a special gift. You just forgive because the Bible says to. Um, Pastor Mark gets up to receive the tithes and the offerings. You don't have to have a special leading or a special gift to honor the Lord with the first fruit. There's a basic Christian responsibility. But let me give you... See, what I think this is a list of are things that take the basic Christian responsibilities and then adds a, we'll just say, spiritual steroids to that area. Can I say that without offending anybody? Let me give you an example of what I think the gift of giving might be. Uh, I had a guy come up to me in church several years ago when I was still back at Raymond. And uh, we had been teaching some of these things. And he came up and said, Brother Cook, he said, I'm so excited. He said, uh, I used to think every time you guys talked about obeying God and you'd talk about the call of God. He said, I thought the call of God only had to do with being a preacher. But he said, I, he said the, the idea of getting up and preaching a sermon just terrifies me. But he said, I realize that the greatest thrill, the greatest joy of my life is when I have an opportunity to give. And he said, my wife and I last year, he said, um, we got to the point where last year we lived on 80% of our income and we gave 20% to the Lord. And this year we're on track to living on 70% and giving 30% to the Lord. He said, our goal is to get to the point in our life, and he said, we're believing God for wisdom and ideas. We're believing God to get to the point where we are living on 10% of our income and giving 90% of our income to the Lord. And, he, and, and the thing was, he was so happy about it. It was just like he was just a kid with a new toy. He couldn't wait to get to the point where he was giving 90% of his income to the Lord. Now, if I got up here tonight and said, you all should be giving 90% of your income to the Lord, you know, there'd be people pass out. It wouldn't be falling under the power either. But see, nobody had, because this guy, this is how God was gifting him. This is how God was gracing him. So, so the expression that was coming out of his life was based on the gift and the grace of God at work in him, not because some preacher had pressured him or manipulated him or even hinted or suggested to him. This was God at work in his life. You know, we can all operate at a basic level, but sometimes God graces us to operate in, a, in just a, a way above and beyond the normal of an area. And it's not always that hyper dramatic, you know. Another really, just for illustration, another dramatic, I mean, we can all operate in basic mercy to one another, and we're supposed to. But somebody who probably operated in the gift of mercy was somebody like Mother Teresa. I mean, you talk about mercy. 
And, and I, I heard a story about her that was so fascinating. You know, they, they know about, everybody knows about her orphanages, but they also had homes and places set up. They would just go through the streets of Calcutta and find people who were literally in the gutter dying. And they didn't necessarily have the means, and you know, the person may have been beyond anybody being able to help them, but they would bring them to these homes and, and wash them and, you know, comfort them and wipe their brow and read the Bible to them. And maybe some of them would only live a few hours or a few days. But, you know, you talk about a big room full of cots with dying people and just, you know, these sisters going around comforting. And, you know, I mean, you talk about mercy and great operation. And there was a wealthy aristocratic lady there visiting, probably a supporter, uh, from England who was a very well-to-do, prim, proper. And so she goes in there to see what's going on. And I mean, she just is appalled at the smells and the sights and the sounds of all these dying people. And, and this lady just shudders and she says, Oh, she said, I wouldn't do this for all the money in the world. And Mother Teresa is standing right next to her and Mother Teresa says, Neither would I. She wasn't doing it for money. She was doing it because there was a gift of, of mercy. I'll close with this. What about prophecy? You know, sometimes we get our own charismatic traditions. We get our own Pentecostal traditions. We think, well, we're not like those old mainline denominational churches that have all the traditions. No, we just create our own. Because if in a service, if in a service somebody gets up and says, Yea, thus saith the Lord, my little children, yea, I say unto thee, Verily, verily, and you know, then there, there are going to be people that say, Ooh, that's a prophecy. <laughs> well, why is it a prophecy? Well, because they said, Yay. <laughs> and because they said, Thus saith the Lord. And because they said, My little children. Well, is that what really makes a prophecy a prophecy? Now, now that can be, you know, but, but verbiage doesn't make something inspired. Do you know what prophecy is? Prophecy is an inspired utterance. An utterance, just it's a fancy word for something you say. It's, it's an inspired statement or phrase that does one of three things. It edifies, that means it builds somebody up. It exhorts, that means it calls them near to God, or it comforts, or it does a combination of those things. You're inspired to say something that builds somebody up, encourages them, exhorts them, calls them near to God, or brings comfort into their life. You don't have to say, yay. (laughs) Thus saith the Lord, my little children, for that to be the case. You know, there could be a time, seriously, where you're just in service and, um, man, you just keep thinking about somebody. And um, you don't know why, but you just kind of have them on your heart. And after service, you just go up to them and say, 
you know what, man, you've been on my heart. I just want to let you know I'll be praying for you this week. And I don't know, just, I, I just want to let you know this, that, man, if you're facing any challenges, I love you, I care about you, and, and I just believe God's going to help you through it. Not, not fancy. You're not foretelling the future. You don't have to... See, see, we think sometimes that in order for it to be a prophecy that it has to be predictive or it has to have revelation. Yes, the Lord told me you just got a letter from XYZ Corporation and they said this, this, and that. That's not prophecy. That's, that, if that happened, that'd be a word of knowledge. But, you know, remember Paul said you can all prophesy? I think what he was trying to say there is you can all have words of encouragement for one another. You don't have to try to run their life. It's not directive. It's not predictive about the future. You're just, it's just a word of encouragement. How many times, you know, you might look across the, the sanctuary and see somebody and just, man, God just drops it on your heart to, man, give them a handshake after church and give them a $20 bill. You know, and, and what you don't know is they might be facing a big battle and that $20 bill is a prophecy to them. You know, I mean, you understand what I'm saying. I mean, to them, they take that as God saying to them, I love you, I haven't forgotten you, I'm going to come through for you. You understand what I'm saying, okay? You know, you, you can let Benjamin Franklin prophesy to them. Or whoever's on whatever bills, I don't know. But, but all I'm saying is this, the role of the believers in the last days is that God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. Everybody is going to have the privilege of being influenced by God and everybody's going to have the opportunity to give an expression. And, and we, are, we don't all have the same gift and we don't all have the same grace. But what we need to learn to do in these last days is just live out of our heart. Number one, make sure that we stay in church where we're getting continually influenced and equipped. Because I'm going to tell you what, if you think, well, I'm just going to live for Jesus just all by myself. I'll tell you what, you know, there's a reason the Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Because it's through corporate worship, being in teaching, being in fellowship, having opportunities to interact with one another. This is where we get a lot of influence in our life. And then when we get thrown out of church, like the, the mended net, then that's when we get to really go and do a lot of the informal ministry just through relationships. And we get dragged back in, and the goal is that we're going to drag some folks back in with us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to thank you for your people. I want to thank you that we're living in a day when your spirit is truly being poured out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. And, and Lord, your maidservants, your men servants, Lord, we're not living in a day where it's just a select individual or two that get to be used by the Spirit of God. Yes, there are pastors. Yes, there are leaders. And they have their position and their place. But all of us have some place and some function and some gifting and some grace to be expressed through our lives in the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you'll open the eyes of every believer and that you'll give each and every one of us opportunities this week to, to have an expression from our life 
of the love of God and help impact and minister to others. Lord, help us to always remember that we're not just here to live in survival mode or success mode, but Lord, we're here to be significant. We're here not just to see what we can get of what we need and what we want, but Lord, we're here to give what we have to be an expression and to be significant in changing the lives of other people. Father, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask you this question real quick. Is there anybody here tonight that your relationship with God is not what it should be? Uh, you don't know the Lord Jesus. You'd, you'd say, Tony, I, I don't know for a fact. If I was to die right now, I don't know for a fact that I'd go to heaven. And, and I want to know. Maybe you've been running away from God and you need to turn around and, and come running back to God uh, maybe you've been half in, half out, lukewarm like that one church in the New Testament. And, and you know that tonight you need to make a real powerful, meaningful uh, dedication of your life to God. You need to give Him all of your life and you need to give Him all of your heart. Just all over this place, if that's you, slip your hand up and let me see your hand real quick tonight. If that's you, you need to give Him your life tonight. You need to get born again tonight. Let me ask you this question. How many of you know someone who needs Jesus? How many of you know someone that's not right with God, that needs to come to God? Let me see your hand. Hold it up real high. You know, to put into practice what we've just talked about tonight, let's just take a minute and pray for those people that you're picturing in your mind. Their name is just on your lips. You could say it out loud. Let's pray for those people right now, and let's believe God together for them. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray for these individuals right now, the ones that we see, the ones that we can envision, the one whose names we're calling to you right now. We mention their names before you. And Lord, we ask you to send laborers across their path. Send individuals who have been influenced by your love and your anointing and your power and let them give a meaningful, accurate, effective expression of your gospel and your love to those people that we're praying for right now. Lord, if we are the laborers that are to go across their path, then give us wisdom, give us sensitivity, give us the words to speak, and, and let us give the right example before them. And Father, we pray that the, the power of darkness that has blinded them will be broken off of their life, that the blindness that has affected them will be removed from them, and they'll be able to see the light and the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we believe that they're coming into the kingdom of God. We believe the gospel will prevail in their life. We break the power of Satan over them in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for laborers that are effective in communicating the gospel to them. Everybody say this out loud. Lord, Lord use, me. use me. I'm one of your children. I'm a last days believer. I receive your anointing. I receive your influence in my life. Help me to have an expression. I will not compare myself or try to imitate somebody else. But I'll be true to the gifts that you've put inside of me. I will serve the body of Christ. I will be a blessing to other people. Make me a blessing, I pray. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.